Hi, welcome to Back to Excited, episode 49, 50 maybe? Um, my name is Arvin, joining me as always, my colleague from PensionPanPuppets.com. It's Acting the Fooliman. Hi, everybody. So, today we are doing, I guess, something a little bit different. We're doing a Twitter mailbag edition of the podcast because we have run out of ideas. <laughs> it's the mid-season, so we thought, what do people want to hear us talk about? And so, Arvin put out a tweet, and we're just going to go down all the reply questions to that tweet. And we're going to try to answer them all to the best of our ability. We got quite a few. Um, maybe a few more than we expected that we were going to get, but we're going to try to make this work. So, yeah, we're just going to rattle these off. So, our first one is from, uh, I'm going to say, erstwhile friend of the podcast, Alan at Loser Points on Twitter, who had the unmitigated gall to ask us, how does it feel to be behind the Islanders in the standings, and is John Tavares the problem? First of all, how dare you? Yeah, I am, have never been so insulted in my life, um, and we're definitely not having him back on until, I don't know, probably in a couple of months. But <laughs> Until the next time you run out of ideas? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Look, he's our Bolts expert. The Bolts are the best team. They're in our division. We kind of have to have him around. More seriously, uh, I don't think there's any denying the Isles are way better than I thought they were going to be. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, is most of it goaltending? Yes. But still, yeah, uh, they are. Better. I think they're like an average to maybe slightly above average team who is getting mm-hmm. absurd goaltending. Um, but even being an average to above average team is probably a lot better than I thought of them in, uh, you know, during the preseason. And it speaks a lot to both their talent and Barry Trotz's ability as a coach. Yeah, I thought they were tanking, and uh, they're not. They're going to make the playoffs, and you know what? Good for them. Notwithstanding, they have, like, a crazy X thing going on with John Tavares, where, like, anytime he breathes on Twitter, 400 Isles fans go, like, snake, snake. It's like, you guys got to chill, man. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it was fine for a while. You had a grieving period, but you got to just move on. Um, anyway, but that said, they are doing well. Uh, uh I think the Leafs are still a way better team than the Isles, though. Alan, don't at me again. Um, Next up, uh, from Chris Gibbons at Gibbonux on Twitter. So the Hockey News made a list of the 100 greatest NHL players in 1998. Mm -hmm. And so Chris said, that list is 20 years old. It would be cool to discuss possible updates to the list. Who makes the list? Where? Uh, which guys would make the list. Now, the NHL actually did its 100 greatest players of all time. Yeah. It didn't rank them. It just... It just put it in some order, in, like, no, no particular order. Yeah. Which is um, a bit of a cop-out, but also probably a good idea, because I feel like it's impossible to rank <laughs> the top 100 players of all time in any actual order. No. The game has changed so dramatically... Yeah. ...that it's extremely difficult to compare guys who are, like, you know... 30 years apart. I, like, And to be clear, I don't want to say, you know, people say, well, Wayne Gretzky wasn't the greatest player ever because he scored on goalies who, like, did not know what to do. Like, they look like department store mannequins in the net. They're just sort of like, I hope he doesn't shoot high or low. Um, you know, he played in the game as it was at the time. He dominated the game in his era. It's not fair to hold him to a standard of an era 30 years later. Yeah. Where we've had developments in skills training and in science and stuff like that. So you can only compare them to when they played. And to be uh, clear, he was also good well into the 90s. Um, really through the 90s when goaltending started to improve dramatically. But that said, um, that makes it really hard 
to do top 100s of all time. I will say since 1998, the guys who have, I would say pretty clearly staked a claim to be in the top 100 uh, as guys who dominated in their era are Joe Thornton, Sidney Crosby, Alexander Ovechkin. Uh, I don't know if they had Nick Lidstrom on that list yet. Uh, if they didn't, they should have. If they didn't, uh, they should, certainly should now. Yeah, he wasn't uh, yet recognized, so Nick Lidstrom is definitely on there. Yeah, and on then the, in net, yeah, sorry, go ahead. On the NHL list, I think like, the active players that they had, and they had way fewer active players than they should have, which is sort of stupid to me because, like, if you're mm-hmm. the NHL making this this list, if anything, you want to say, hey, like, fifteen of the best players of all time are playing now, even if it's only like eight. Right? What a like, time to be alive! Yeah, yeah. I think they had Crosby, Ovechkin, Kane, Taves, Keith, and maybe one other person and like yeah that's a hideous list <laughs> to be totally honest with you um it's not good yeah, and Cro- yeah so i was about to say uh evgeny malkin yeah malkin's yeah. got to be on the list zidane chara has to be on the list yeah um, zidane Chara does. thornton has to be on the list um I, taves should not be on the list if he's on the list and on the list then so should on say kopitar um yeah kane um, should not be on the list in my opinion uh, although, actually, you know, he, he's had a really strong couple of years recently. So, I, 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 guess, I guess. I mean, I mean, one, for a lot of reasons, you know, I don't like him. But yes. The, the truth is, is that the Chicago Blackhawks were the closest thing to a modern dynasty. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, it feels weird to make a list and not include them. And yet, at the same time, it's like, what they had was a lot of really, really high-end players who were not the best in the league at their position. Like, I think Marion Hossa has always been super underrated. If you look at that team in 20, uh, 2010, uh, they were obscenely deep. Yeah. Like, in addition to the core players that everyone remembers, they had Brian Campbell. They had Dustin Bufflin. Um, they had tons and tons of guys playing well down the lineup. Like, they, they were a, an extremely strong team. So I kind of think the Chicago Blackhawks maybe don't need representation because they were more of a... A strength of the whole as opposed to the individual parts. Yeah. That's me. Eric Carlson should make this list too. Yeah, I would agree with that. Like Eric, um, Eric Carlson absolutely has to make that list. Um, well, an interesting question is, does right now, does Connor McDavid make that list? Four years into his career, however many years it's been. Yeah, you know, I, I've been thinking about that. And my honest answer is no. But only because, like, I think if his career stopped now, uh, we w- I mean, one, it would be tragically disappointing I, I absolutely do not want that but it would feel like it, it would be like a bit of a, a maximized version of the Eric Lindros thing where he was very very dominant for a very short time mm-hmm. but I think you do need a bit of longevity otherwise you know it's like it's impressive he's won the scoring trophy and stuff like that but I, I think he's a guarantee to get there if he keeps playing it's just I, I don't think I'd put him there yet yeah the other, I mean, I, I don't know if Lundqvist made the NHL list, but he should. He's been the best goalie of his era. Um, I know. And this is a guy that probably doesn't make it yet, but I think in like five years it'll be pretty clear. Nikita Kucherov. Yeah. Nikita Kucherov is interesting because he's one of those guys who never gets the credit that he should. One, because he's, he's a winger. Two, because he's Russian. Um, three, because he plays on a team with a lot of really, really fantastic players. But like... That guy has been destroying this league for a while now. He's still only 25. <laughs> yeah, and like 
you know, he's in the heart of his prime, and there's not, like, any imminent prospect that he's going to decline. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I do think Nikita Kucherov should probably make that list. Yeah. Um, Off the top of my head, those those are the guys who I think would make an updated list, and it's hard to say where. I think I think I don't have the hockey knowledge to, to say that, oh, you know, you know, Nikita Kucherov should be 93rd on this list. But it, again, you get really into the problem of who dominated their era. I yeah. will say Crosby at his peak, and unfortunately his peak was constantly interrupted by concussions. But when he was playing at his very best, I think he deserves to be mentioned in the same breath as Gretzky and Howe and Orr. Yeah. He was so dominant. I actually remember he had that uh, famous point streak at the start of one year. And there was, like, a bar near my buddy's house that had 10-cent wings. And so, I don't know how I'm alive, because there's no way that the wings should have been that cheap. But um, we would just go out and, like, shoot pool and just watch every night when Crosby was playing. Uh, Because every night he was just dominating that game. It was, like, a real pleasure to watch him at the absolute height of his powers. And I've had hints of that with other players, but I was immediately conscious at the time of watching Crosby. Like I am watching pure greatness in this sport. And you know, for something that's a little bit nebulous when you're talking about greatest, I think that kind of magic wow quality does go a long way. So I would say Crosby should be like top five ish. for my, Yeah. My Tyler Dello had his, this post and it was about Connor McDavid. Uh, and kind of the heights that he could possibly hit. But in, in that post at The Athletic, he, he made the point that Crosby, in his prime, like in the, I guess, early 2010s, reached a point of on-ice production that pretty much no one has matched consistently, mm-hmm. right? Uh, including McDavid. And as you said, it's a shame that that got, caught, ah, that got cut short with injury. He was just a spectacularly dominant player. And even now, he's been, he's still amazing, right? Yeah. But, He's clearly not what he used to be. What he used to be was one of the ten best players of all time. Yeah, easily. Like now, he's merely excellent. <laughs> Just like, yeah, now oh, he's merely a top five center in the world. <laughs> How does he stand it? Yeah. But you know, I do think um, when his career is done, he's definitely going to be what he was promised to be. Like he'll be the guy where we're like, we saw Crosby play at his best, and we're gonna like remember that as what a special thing that was. Yep. So, yeah, uh, our next question is from Will Colley 13 um, Talking about the sizable portion of our fan base who continues to beg management to go after players like Wendell Clark. So, Clarkson, Wayne Simmons, while removing more modern players. He says, why is this still a thing? Have they not still got over the Clarkson-Dean trade? So, yeah, basically, there's a lot of, uh, of the fan base who says, why don't the Leafs get tougher? They aren't tough enough. Um... The question is, and I think we've talked about this a bit in the past, tough in what sense? Like, what is it doing for you? Because there's Colton or tough, which is you will rack up fighting majors and achieve nothing. And I think most people are kind of aware now that that isn't really worth going crazy over. Like, I mean, maybe this is just sort of the bubble that I exist in, but I think a lot of fans would rather have Trevor Moore or somebody on that line. At this point. Mm-hmm. But they talk about a guy like Wayne Simmons. And uh, one, you wrote recently about how Wayne Simmons is not what he's remembered as now. Like, he's be- he's definitely in decline. Yes, absolutely. But two, it's... Um, 
there's a famous quote, and I think it's John F. Kennedy, but it says victory has a thousand fathers and defeat is an orphan. Mm-hmm. I think the irony of it is that uh, victory doesn't need to be explained and defeat is explained a thousand ways. When the Leafs are bad, any criticism or feeling that you have about the team, you can sort of validate it because you say, well, they didn't have this and that's why they're bad. And a lot of people don't really strain themselves to prove that that's true in any deeper sense. So when the Leafs have a bit of a slump, like they have had recently, although thankfully they won last night over the Penguins pretty impressively, but when they have a slump, anything that's bothering you, you can point and say, that's the problem there. You can do this with defensemen. I uh, see a lot of people who will say, oh, obviously it's Nikita Zaitsev or it's Ron Hainsey. You can't win playing those guys that high in the lineup. Some other people will say, obviously it's because they're soft. They don't have tough players who are going to go to the dirty errors, who are going to assert something or are going to throw down a hit. Um, kind of the brilliance, actually, of the Jake Muzzin trade was that he kind of satisfies all the elements. You know, he improves the, uh, the top pairing. He improves the shot differentials, but he's also a big defenseman who threw a pretty memorably big hit, even if it didn't, you know, make that much of a difference yeah, in and of itself. Let me just comment on that quickly. So, yeah. um, I forget who the hit was against, but basically Muzzin rubbed someone out uh, pretty well along the boards, and the Hockey Night in Canada crew basically just ejaculates, um, <laughs> as, as did my Twitter feed and large portions of it. And then yeah. no one seemed to notice that another penguin just picked up the puck and passed it to another penguin. And as it happened on that play, they passed it to a trading penguin who came in slightly late and it was offside. So it ended yeah. up not hurting the least at all. But like that, the, that hit actually didn't really help the play at all. No. Like it, was, um, it was nice. It wasn't his fault that it didn't turn into anything. It's just that like, you know, that's the NHL. Sometimes you can hit a guy and it, the puck will go somewhere and it still doesn't work out great for you. But it, yeah, that was kind of funny. Yeah, yeah, I remember uh, Katja pointing that out at the time. Up, she was immediately like, "Did anyone notice what happened after?" <laughs> and um, the thing about the the big hit, and I've always thought this, is that the really spectacular one, where you just crush a guy into the upper deck, it looks like, um, y- you know, one often you have to take yourself out of position a little bit to make it, like you're sacrificing everything to body the guy. But two, you also kind of take yourself out of the play. If the puck can be recovered, you're kind of doing a one for one thing where you're like, okay, I'm going to drop this guy, but I am going to also go out a little bit with him. And presumably you recover quicker than the guy you knocked down. But Mm -hmm. there is a bit of a positional sacrifice there. And there are players who go for the hit every single time. And as a consequence, I think they are less effective because they end up not recovering the puck. Um you know, standard defense now is put the your stick on the puck before you hit the guy and try and prevent him from getting it away at the last second. So it's kind of a combo thing. But to bring it back around to our question as to why is everyone so eager for this? Well, it's satisfying, right? Uh, hockey is still a game that has a lot of aggression in it, a lot of physicality. It's exciting when, you know, when someone throws a shoulder at the opposition, you know, it gets your blood up and Makes you excited to watch. People watch to some extent, some of them, for that physicality. It's not nothing. But it also means that you're prone to using that as an explanation. So it's like when they're losing, which makes me feel bad. Why aren't they doing the thing that makes me feel good? Which is leveling some guys out there. And we don't always ask whether or not it's being effective. Or whether this guy is going to be effective in bringing it. 
And the question raises a good point, which is that, you know, David Clarkson was supposed to do this. And he was extremely catastrophically ineffective in the Leafs uniform by any way you measure it. So it's not so much that I'm averse to getting tougher. Like if you could give me a guy like Zach Hyman with like a little bit more in the way of hands, I would be over the moon. That guy would be a great player. He'd be tough to play against and he would also help you win. But I think that the guys who are tough and who genuinely help you win is a narrower and harder to discern category than guys who are just tough. Um, so that's kind of my long way of saying it is like, you know, I think it matters. Um, but I think that it's toughness is kind of associated with just the big hit or the guy who seems gritty when what you really want is the guy who can make the big hit, who can seem gritty, but who can drive play. So that's how I'd put it. Yeah. Um, the other thing I'd mention is that, like, I think the media plays a big part in this, uh, in terms of the kind of the fetishizing of, of that sort of thing. And it, I think there's a bit of an ego thing on display. And this isn't just limited to hockey. Um, it's a thing in soccer. So in soccer, um, most people are probably familiar with the Brazilian and Paris Saint-Germain player, Neymar, who is uh, brilliantly talented, just routinely makes fools of people. Um, and controversial for other reasons, because he, he dives a lot. But uh, he... he <laughs> is perhaps the best dribbler in the world. He routinely just embarrasses opponents with what he does. Like, the stuff he can do on, on a pitch in a game environment is bonkers. But as a result, a lot of the times what happens is that, like, he'll kind of destroy a guy's soul by, by going past him, and then the next time, that guy will just kick him in the knee. Mm. Right? And it's kind of like the, the idea is, like, you're not going to make a fool out of me. You're not going to embarrass me. Right? And yeah. that, that's almost what this sort of toughness thing is in hockey as well. It's like, you may beat us, but you're not going to make us look like we're weak, right? And in, yeah. in soccer, it's actually a very big problem for Neymar because he's injured right now as a result <laughs> because guys keep hacking his ankles, right? Yeah. yeah. So I think that that plays a big part in it. But yeah, we, we've spent a lot of time on that question, so best to move on. Okay. So this is from Alex Goshen saying, I know it's been discussed and maybe at points it's happened, but why is the Leafs' depth not crushing other teams, specifically Boston, because fuck, I'm sick of losing to them. I sympathize with you very deeply on an emotional level. So, yeah, the one thing I would say here is that I think generally with their full lineup, the Leafs' depth has been crushing other teams, right? And notwithstanding that Nylander and Kadri, in my opinion, have had two weak games since, they, since the All-Star break uh, mm-hmm. and the bye week, in like the month prior to that, they were operating at like a high 50s Corsi. And mm-hmm. like they're getting a lot of shots, a lot of chances, and not a lot of goals. And I think really what was stopping them was mostly puck luck. And that reversed itself to some degree in the game against Washington. Um, again, they haven't had a stronger, they haven't been very strong these last two games. I think part of that is because they're playing with Connor Brown. And the only thing that kills offense faster than Connor Brown on the line is Connor Brown on a line on his off wing. Mm, so very true. I, I think that plays a part in it. Not that Kadri and Nylander aren't culpable themselves. You know, they have to take responsibility. But by and large, I think the Leafs' depth has been crushing other teams. And that's, if that can continue, that would be really, really good because the Matthews line has finally seemingly woken up these last couple games, and Tavares has just been so good all year. Like, I, mm-hmm. I, this needs to be said more. John Tavares is so, so good. He is unbelievably good. He is amazing. He has been the least best forward, in my opinion. He's yes. excellent. Yeah. I, I mean, like, I he, think He's that... been so consistently great. 
Yeah, I, I think people expected that just by adding him, we were going to zoom up like 15 points in the standings or something. And the fact that the team hasn't been tracking quite to the extent that people hoped in terms of improvement over last year has led people to maybe underestimate just how brilliant he has been. But like he has been in every respect a top, top center in the NHL. Um, chemistry with Marner we've talked about has been off the charts. So, yeah, I still, I know that this sounds kind of Pollyanna-ish, but I think that this team is pretty well positioned when it gets rolling. I do think Connor Brown, um, just not a fan of using him on an offensive line anymore, especially at the expense of Andreas Janssen. Yeah, I, and I guess like this is something we're not privy to, but Janssen is coming back from a concussion. Maybe they want to ease mm-hmm. him in, but it just, it seems weird that we're playing a right wing on the left side on his off wing and a left wing on the right side on his off wing when the left wing who we're playing on his off side is better than the right wing who we're playing on his off side. Yeah, it's like we can simplify this a lot. Move yeah. Andreas Janssen up and move Connor Brown down. Yeah. And, so, uh, yeah. But anyways, that, that goes beyond the point of the question. Um, to answer Alex's question, I think by and large they have been fine. The Leafs depth. Um, I don't have the numbers off the, off the top of my head, but even with these last two games, the numbers with Nylander and Kadri together have been phenomenal. And mm. I would expect that you know, when Nylander, if and when he moves up to the Matthews line, he's probably taking Kapanen in spot. Kapanen will move down with Kadri. I think that line's going to be great too. Kapanen has had an incredibly positive possession impact everywhere he's gone this year. He's another guy who's had a low-key, incredibly impressive 5v5 year. So I'm not too worried about this particular issue. Yeah, and, and Boston, I'll just finally say, I think our depth can handle their depth. Our problem is that first line. And, you know, it's always going to be the issue against Boston because that first line is very, very hard to stop. And David Pasternak has had a unpleasant habit of eating our souls, basically. Mm-hmm. So, <laughs> um, yeah, it, it's going to come down to what we can do against that top line. But I think our depth can handle them. So, yeah. Um, next one up is from Pids88. Uh, Pids88 was uh, generous enough to ask us quite a few questions. Um, so... This first one, that for some reason Twitter kept separate from his other ones, uh, I don't think we should spend too much time on because we really lit into him last week on this. Uh, it's, why is Brian Burke so irritating? Um, I'll answer that in one act- sentence. Yeah. He has, he has shown no ability or no like, kind of contrition or any recognition of the fact that he has made mistakes in the past. Yeah. Um, and I think that's the bottom line of it i it's i'll just say that the complete uh lack of sort of acknowledgement or awareness of just how badly he did certain things jibes really uh painfully with the brash arrogance that is supposed to be his calling card and you can say well that's you know talk radio or that's uh panel shows on tv that's fine but that means i don't want to watch them so that's uh, the bottom line on Brian Burke, just because I don't want to double that up. Okay, so our next question is, uh, I'm inclined to, th- sorry, this is from HockeyPlug1345. I'm inclined to think that one of our D will be moved out prior to the deadline, only due to having too many on the roster and possibly losing them for nothing if sent down. Do you think they will make another trade for this reason? And who would you move? So Martin Marincin, after this question was asked, was actually waived. Um, so presumably he's going down if he's not claimed. We don't know yet if he's going to be claimed. You would find out, unfortunately, a little after we do this recording. So I guess that's the answer. 
um, as to what's going to happen. Yeah, and then that gives us enough room to reactivate Tyler Ennis, and then we're pretty much fine in terms yeah. of roster spots, right? Um, I mean, there's an interesting uh, question that bears on this, which is conveniently enough our next question, so I'll take this on as well while answering this one. So this one was from MLG Philly. Uh, are you a fan of Justin Hole, or would you rather him waived? Um, I'm not sure what to think of Justin Hole at this point. I think that... Uh, the Toronto Maple Leafs Twitter community has a way of adopting guys who don't get into games and kind of turning them into avatars for fan discontentment and for like frustration with Mike Babcock. Especially because, um, especially because the Leafs defenses and defensive core is so obviously an issue and it's been a big point of contention that Babcock hasn't really experimented a huge amount with his defense core. Yes. Um, at least not at least not in very obvious ways. Yeah, he was sticking with the same starting lineup. There were maybe more moves in game, and uh, Katya's written about this than was popularly recognized. Like he would start the game with the same old, same old pairings, but there would be movement within games. Travis Dermott might play more, might play less. Gardner and Riley might play together at certain key times. Uh, right. The, the Leafs had the interesting property where. Um, all three, all three of their left-sided defensemen played more than the right-sided defensemen on their pairing. Yeah. Right, um, so it's like, okay, well, logically, some of those minutes have to be coming together. Yeah, just because otherwise, you know, you have to be kind of tagged to your partner to some extent. Um, so I think that uh, with regard to Justin Hall, um, he might be a fine enough third-pair defenseman. Um, I didn't think that uh, Igor Ozaganov was playing badly. I thought that his pairing with Dermot was fine. I think Dermot and Hall would also have been fine. But I'm not like... I don't think that Justin Hall was going into the top four in any estimation. And I don't think that Justin Hall on the third pair would make for a really drastic improvement. So I'm kind of deferential to the coach on that one, I guess. Like, I don't think that he was making a critical oversight by not playing him. Um, Do I want him to be waived? I don't know about that. I mean, we don't have that many right-shooting defensemen, and I think that he can probably play at the NHL-ish level. Uh, Kyle, and yeah, sorry. The other thing is uh, Hall has a contract for next year that pays him a very, very, very small amount, which makes him perfect at the least 70. Yeah, so... And I, I, I think that's exactly what they intended when they signed that contract, to be totally honest with you. Yeah, I mean, you feel for Hall a little bit. It sucks to be just a permanent resident of the press box. And, you know, it, it became clear that given the choice... Uh, Mike Babcock was going to play Martin Marinson as the seventh D um, or as the the injury spot replacement, even on the right side, if needed, just because he didn't uh, trust Justin Hull to kill penalties or to do the things that he wanted out of the depth's defenseman. So, like, I think that's kind of telling. It's interesting that Marinson was waived and not Hull. Um, I think part of it plays into what you, you just mentioned about how they want to keep him for next year. I think almost all of it, to be honest. Yeah. Um, I do wonder if there's a bit of a disparity in valuation between the GM and the coach on that one. Could be. Yeah. um, But who can say? Uh, So as regards just in the whole, I don't know that I'm a fan of him. I don't know that I dislike him. I don't want him waived either. I'm kind of fine with him where he is. I feel like it's hard to have a strong opinion on Justin Hall. Mm Mm-hmm and his ability at the NHL level. And I think if you have an incredibly strong opinion about him, I'm, I'm a little suspect because I'm, I'm just, I don't know what that's based on at this point. We haven't seen him that much. 
Yeah, I, I mean, there right. are people who who loved him in the AHL, and there are people who believe the people who loved him in the AHL, and then there are people who are just so frustrated with Nikita Zaitsev that they would take literally anyone over him. Mm-hmm. Like, I think, you know... And I can empathize with that. Like, I, I find him frustrating a, a lot of the time. At the same time, I don't think that it's just a given that anyone no. you slot in is going to be way better. Yeah, I agree. Um... So yeah, that would be my answer. Uh, sorry, there was a, a secondary question related to that, which was, do you think they will make another trade for this reason? And who would you move? I don't think that they're going to trade any of their defensemen in the near future. I don't think that they're going to make a trade for that reason. I think it's possible that they make a trade. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've actually I've been talking with Kevin Papetti of our website about this, and we've been kind of noodling around ideas about a Zaitsev trade mm-hmm. um, and whether that's possible. And I think... Having Muzzin makes it more likely that Zaitsev is traded before the trade deadline, um, simply because there's less of a concern of like Babcock going bananas because he literally has no one else to play. <laughs> yeah. Um, I still don't think it's likely. I still think it's a less than fifty percent chance. I would maybe estimate it like fifteen to twenty percent. But mm-hmm. it, I mean, it, it's hard because kind of with any sort of Zaitsev deal, we're kind of banking on the other team misevaluating him to some degree because that contract, if you don't believe he... If you believe he's a third-pairing guy, it's a really unpalatable contract. Mm-hmm. It's really, really, really poor. So you have to hope there's a team that thinks he's like a low-end second-pairing guy or even a mid-range second-pairing guy and are willing to um, take him on. And I, truthfully, I have no idea if Zaitsev is an asset around the league or a, uh, a negative asset. It, it's, it's hard to say. Uh, Chris Johnston has... has I think mentioned once that the Leafs are interested in moving him, and but they might have to pay to do so, which would indicate that a lot of teams see Zaitsev as a bad contract. Mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, I, I don't have a lot to to add to that. It's we'll see. I don't think it's terribly likely that it happens now, but I don't. I'm not shutting the door on it entirely either. Yeah, I think that it would be more likely if it was going to happen to happen in June, possibly at the draft. Yes. Yeah. I mean, I think I think smart money is. On higher probability that it's a draft day trade than anything else. Yeah, um, it, it's worth noting that uh, Zaitsev has a limited no trade clause that would kick in um, on July first. Yep. So, if you do want to uh, trade him away, you probably want to do it before that date, which is why the draft makes so much sense to me. Um, so, uh, this is from BK Hutton. Uh, why wouldn't Anderson play the second half of back to backs instead of the first? Tired team would want the better goalie. I kind of think that this is a wash. I mean, the general consensus on goaltending is that you do get worse goaltending from the same goalie if he's playing the second night of a back-to-back. Like, there does seem to be a decline in performance. But I think you can just as easily turn it around and say, uh, try to win um, the first game of the back-to-back, and then the second night is gravy. Um, I don't know that it kind of matters too much either way yeah i don't have strong opinions on this yeah i mean as long as you're resting him one of those nights i think that makes more long-term sense and then beyond that it's just a matter of pick your poison so yeah uh this one is from uh dj levitan which is i'd be interested to hear a short ranking of what metrics you find most useful in evaluating skaters and why uh my rankings are compete cups and compete which I think he may be being funny there, but who knows? Um, no, no, he, he, he's definitely I know, being sarcastic. Kidding. Yeah, um, and I want to be clear that compete is the only thing that ever matters. Yeah, I think cups are a bit too high on the list. Yeah. Um, no, uh, 
speaking personally, um, I don't think I ever just look at one number just because I think it's easy to kind of burn yourself that way, no matter how you think the number is. Um, I still do look at shot differentials. I like to look at points and goals on a rate basis, uh, especially for a guy who's supposed to be a scoring forward. Like, I think that there's a bit of an, an odd disparity there where points are so, so overvalued in, like, the mainstream of thought. And then sometimes on the fringes or in, like, the stat community, you'll get people who are, like, they think that every guy could be that hypothetical where it's, like, as long as he, he drives play and he gets goals on his line but never scores himself, that's okay. And I'm a little skeptical of those guys. And then uh, I like uh, the expected goals metrics i like to uh to check them i look up uh, corsica's when it is willing to load for me which is like 40 percent of the time um so when i just want to get to know a guy really really quickly i start at those things and then maybe i'll hop over to hockey viz which is micah mccurdy's site which has some cool visuals for just trying to see you know where the shots are coming from when he's on the ice his on off splits so yeah that's kind of my first way in a lot of similar similarities with me like Broadly, I, I try and think, and this is, applies more for forwards, so I'll, I'll consider forwards first. Um, the first thing I look at, I, I tend to go to hockey vis and see, okay, how, how good is this person at, like, what, what are the shot differentials when they're on the ice versus not? And then I, you drill down deeper, so sometimes that'll, that kind of tells you all you need to know. Mm-hmm. Um, or not all you need to know, but it gives you a decent picture. And then I start looking at, okay, well, let's look at his other usage, right? That, who are his teammates like? Who are his line mates like? What situations is he used in? Is he, does his coach trust him in high leverage situations? Things like that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you can start looking at the context adjusted measures that I talked about a lot, like isolated threat and RIPM, which is on Evolving Hockey's website. Um, I think those are really, really useful to get a sense of what players are actually kind of driving the bus. I think they're not perfect, but they do generally a, a pretty solid job. And that kind of covers it from the, from the play driving perspective. And then the next thing I want to look at is, okay, does this person um, actually have an above average shooting, right? Because uh, uh, consistently above average shooting is the single most valuable skill you could provide to a hockey team. Mm-hmm. Uh, it moves the needle so much more than driving play because it's basically a multiplier making every one of your shots more efficient. It, it's, it's so valuable, which is a guy, which is why a guy like Patrick Laine, who literally does one thing well at the NHL level, mm-hmm. is still an incredibly valuable player because the one thing he does well is the most important thing and he is, in, he is the best in the world at it, right? So yeah. looking at that, looking at, how they impact their teammates' shooting percentage, which is a bit harder to do. Um, but for guys like like Nick Backstrom, um, I, I, this is kind of a pet theory that he's a little underrated by current staff because as a playmaker, you know, when people convert highly on the ice with him there, he doesn't necessarily get credit for that in our current staff models, but he deserves some of it. Um, so those are the types of things I, I tend to look at. And I, I love looking at uh, shot generation and expected goal generation in, on an individual level to see if a guy is actually, um, you know, actually contributing to a team or if he's a passenger or, mm-hmm. you know, if, he, if he's just kind of floating along. And this is, that's one reason I'm so high on Kapitan this year because his expected goal generation and his shot generation is, is quite strong. Um, and that's one reason why Austin Matthews is such a dominant offensive player because he's amazing at doing that. For defense, it gets trickier. Oh, and the other thing I like to look at, although I don't have a huge sample for this uh, because the data doesn't exist yet, but um, any any passing data, any zone entry, zone exit data is, is cool to get at. Although I think it's more it's more team dependent at times mm-hmm. than people would like to admit. Like I think in some cases, 
there's a very clear strategy of oh get the puck to this guy and he'll he that's his role right um it's so it's not a be all and end all but it, it's nice and useful in a descriptive sense for defensemen it's similar except i basically stopped caring entirely about shooting mm. and this is also why i tend to believe forwards are more valuable than defensemen mm-hmm. i think forwards can provide shooting lift to themselves and their line mates i don't think the defensemen can do that and nor do i think defensemen can really prevent that um and to be clear there, I think defensemen can impact shot quality against, and Ryan Suter, for example, is a very good example of that. He, his shot quality when Ryan Suter's on the ice is really poor because he defends the middle of the ice excellently. But when you account for shot locations, I don't believe any defender can make uh, those shots less dangerous, really. Yeah. Or at least not, not on a significantly large t- uh, scale. So that's part of why I tend to believe t- teams should invest in forwards whenever possible. Yeah, and uh, conveniently enough, that's what our team appears to be doing. So, yes. yeah. Th- these are completely unrelated thoughts. Yeah, yeah. No, uh, <laughs> <laughs> funny how this works out. But yeah, uh, I, I do uh, I share a lot of that. The one thing I will note about the microstats is that I kind of have, and this is very much just me trying to wade through a world that I only partly understand, given my lack of math training. Uh but it's simpler in the case of passing stats, which are just tracking from small samples. I kind of put them in the that's interesting bin, but I don't put a lot of weight on them. You know what I mean? So if a guy has very good shot quality uh, metrics or something like, you know, like his expected goals look really, really strong and have for a while. Um, lesser micro stats might make me think, gee, has he been playing with someone else who's been taking a lot of the weight for him? But it's probably not going to flip over my opinion of him. You know what I mean? Like, I kind of have to put that into a secondary category where I'm interested in it. I'm grateful that it's being done. I want more of it, but I just don't know how much weight to put safely on it. So I kind of treat it as adding color to my evaluations of players rather than a basis for making those evaluations itself, which is kind of what I do with some of the other more uh, generalized stats that I rely on. That's just my personal yeah. way of going at it. The one thing I will say is that like, I think there's some evidence that for defensemen specifically, mm. um, those microstats end, end up having quite significant predictive power. But it's also it's hard to find it in a significantly large enough sample that I am comfortable making basis or making the basis for my opinion on a player based on that. The other thing is it, I tend to see it reported as like percentiles in most cases, and that can be a little misleading. Mm-hmm. Um, and to give an example of that, like I, I, a long time ago, like maybe a few years ago, I looked at the distribution of point scoring in the, in the NHL, like on a rate basis. And basically, um, the difference between a guy who scores at a third line level and a guy who scores at a second line level, it's like six or seven even strength points per year. Mm. It's like not that much. But then the difference between uh, an average second liner and an average first liner or an above average first liner is like, 15 or 20 even mm-hmm. strength points per year. It's like a huge, huge gap between the best players and everyone else. And everyone else is kind of playing the same game, and then the best players just blow everyone else away. Yeah. Right? So, like, if someone is the 70th percentile there, that's not that much more impressive than being the 50th percentile. Yeah, right? I think and, that and makes sense. Yeah, that kind of holds true in most hockey stats that I've seen, where the elite guys are truly, truly elite, and everyone else is kind of clumped together. Yeah, I, I think that that's a fair description. So hopefully that uh, that's kind of given us... I, I will say, you know, we're always trying to know more. I think we know more from looking at this sort of stuff. But 
even then I try to keep some humility with this stuff, partly from yeah, experience from having been absolutely. burned before. And, and absolutely. You know, we talk about the eye test. When someone who I really trust who watches the game tells me something about a player that I don't watch very much, I take that seriously. Like, when we talk about the eye test or something like that, the people that I tend to discount, it's not necessarily because they're using the eye test. It's because there are people who I know as commentators, I mean, Burke is one that we've complained about, who kind of just either make stuff up or appear to see whatever they expect to see. You know what I mean? When there are people who are honestly looking at the eye test, I take that into account too. And it doesn't necessarily flip over my understanding of the stats, but it stays with me. Um, so, so yeah, it's always just going to be sort of a messy, holistic picture. But uh, yeah, so back to uh, PIDS88. Here is his uh, string of questions. So we'll try and tackle these in a row. Um, with Chiarelli out of the picture, who does Dubas target to unload the Zaitsev contract? Benning. Um, Benning, <laughs> yeah. Always bet on Jim Benning. Uh, I just want to note, okay, I promise that I'm not going to do too much Oilers content, but there was a quote from Mark Spector saying, for the next Oilers GM, he didn't want another Peter Chiarelli. He wanted a Jim Benning. And I don't know. I don't know what to tell you anymore. Anyway, Jim Benning or maybe Dale Talon, but who knows why any individual GM is evaluating Zaitsev the way that they are. I, I mean, also Lula Amarillo is kind of a thought, but who knows. Um... How much could we expect Cappy and Janssen to sign for? The honest answer is, I don't know, and it'll be the product of negotiations. And as an aside, if I were looking to offer sheet someone, if I were like expecting where does it make sense to make an offer sheet, I don't think it's going to happen with Matthews or Marner. I think Kasperi Kapanen might make some sense for another team to target. But uh, with that as, as said, I think Kapanen is going to make in the high three million range, and I think Janssen will make maybe two. Yeah, that sounds about right. Um, I'd have to dig into the comparables to make sure, but mm -hmm. I, I think mid to high threes for Kapanen, and then uh, Janssen could go either way. Mm -hmm. he, he has Arbrights, but then his counting numbers are not going to be that great, um, especially since he's missed time with some injury. He had a pretty slow start, so... Uh, yeah, I'll ballpark it at like high high ones, low twos. But yeah. there's a lot of variance there. I'm expecting Janssen to finish with something like 35 points um, on the year. So we'll see if that happens. Um, mm -hmm. If it does, you know, you might expect that he might get a sort of slightly inflated version of the Connor Brown contract or something, which would be uh, closer to two and a half. But uh, we'll see. Uh, I, I think that uh, certainly in Janssen's case, he should be easy to keep. And I have said, you know, Cappy makes sense as an offer sheet target. I'll still believe it when I see it. Um, so, how do the Leafs stack up against Boston? Uh, this has been like a recurring <laughs> painful thing that we've talked about. But the very quick version is that Boston has arguably the best top line in the NHL. Uh, or very close to it. The Leafs have, I would say, significantly stronger forward depth. Although Boston's forward depth is not abysmal, it's just not as good as the Leafs, who are a very deep team. Um, on defense, I especially with the addition of Muzzin, I actually like our defense probably more than most outsiders would. But the fact remains, uh, Charlie McAvoy is a really good player. And Zidane Chara, because he has his magical license where he doesn't get called for interference enough, uh, is still somehow kind of effective at age 1 billion. So that's my bullet summary. Yeah, um, I think 
the Leafs are a better team, but not by that much. And I think a series between them is going to be like I think the Leafs are favored, but it's like fifty five forty five. Yeah, favored. It's like not by a whole lot. Yeah. Um. So we'll see. And I mean, it's also a little concerning now that uh, maybe we can discuss this very very briefly. The, the Leafs power play has gone cold over the last little bit, I and for cold. much of that time, I haven't really been worried because they've still been generating chances and opportunities. Um, their last two games were perhaps the most inept power plays that I've ever seen. That did not end up in shorthanded goals. Like it, mm-hmm. They were so bad. At one point, I actually just started laughing uh, watching the Leafs power play because it was just like they, they'd try an entry and they'd immediately just get rebu- rebuffed at the blue line. And then they'd try it again and the exact same thing would happen for two minutes. Yeah. I, it, it was just comical. Um, but yeah, they got, I'd like for them to figure that out, but they have some time to do so and they have the tools to do so. Um, I trust the the coaching staff on this front. They've, they've constructed pretty strong power plays for the past few years. So, yeah, I will say again, sorry, I, yep, I keep kind it. of adding uh, things that are, people do not appreciate how good JVR was. No, they don't. And, you know, I see a lot of these sassy comments where they're like, how would we replace JVR? Well, yeah, we got John Tavares. And I think and Tavares was, is very, very good. Yeah. Amazingly good. And like I think everyone with the brains at the at the time, but JVR was also a really useful player in a lot of respects, and that includes he's a really really good net front presence on the power play. And he's like the best net front presence in the league on the power play, still in my opinion. Like yeah, I, I, I don't know how well he's doing in in Philly. Philly just continues to befuddle me. Yeah, um, in, after in they totally way. played themselves out, they've gone on this insane tear lately, um, which is really kind of weird to me but jvr is producing again you know he's probably going to finish in the 25 30 goal bracket so and he's missed some time with injury too so yeah um so you know uh but yeah i i think that you know the power play needs to be adjusted the truth is is that the leafs are not and this has actually been a recurring theme under the jim hiller power plays that i've noticed is that they really have the one kind of zone entry method which is that they come over the line in a group of four and they usually make a a pass at the last minute and try and get the try and get in that way and the opposition usually what they do is they'll play three or so guys right up on the blue line and then just try and stop the leaves there detroit does this very effectively but i've seen carolina do it effectively in the past and if the leaves don't get that zone entry and then get time to set up like any other power play. They look like garbage. Like yeah. without zone time, suddenly you're like, these guys are hopeless. When the Leafs get set up, they are still trying for the cross seam a lot and everyone knows it's coming, but I'm, I'm still less worried about that than I might be. Yeah. I mean, the one thing I would say, like anecdotally, it, it seems like at times it's like, just, just pass to virus. Let him let, like, let go to the front of the net. Like let him, let him do that. Like he's, he's still very good at that. Mm-hmm. Um, but that could just be like, you know, if one of those crossing passes gets through and Matthews put, pushed in the back of the net, suddenly my opinion changes or whatever, right? So, like, yeah. I don't really trust my opinion on that too much at this point. Um, yeah. So, what's the next question? Uh, so, O'Neill versus Burke, who wins the Cranky Hockey Man Championship? This is not a race where I want to vote for a winner, but sometimes I think O'Neill is funny and Burke yeah. makes me annoyed. So Yeah, I, I pretty much agree entirely <laughs> with that. Uh, O'Neill has some redeeming qualities. Yeah, he has his moments. Um, so, list of quality Leafs podcasts. So, I actually listen to fewer Leafs podcasts other than ours than I probably should, just because there are only so many hours in a day. 
But uh, I will give a big shout out to the Leafs Geeks podcast, which is run by frenemy of the blog and pod, Ian Tullock. Uh, Ian is a, uh, a really smart guy, and he gets on great guests like us. So <laughs> we have to love him. Yeah. And uh, yeah, and obviously, you know, uh, the Steve Dangle podcast is kind of the behemoth. They probably don't need me to mention them, but <laughs> they have like 10 times our audience. But, you know, yeah. Uh, who else could the Leafs potentially target before the trade deadline? Uh, I think we've mentioned both Nick Jensen and Radko Gudas. I would expect it would be someone in that vein. Uh, like I'm expecting defense depth. I don't expect that they're going to make a really huge addition. And I would be surprised if they made that big power forward addition everyone's going on about. Well, what do I know? Mark Stone, you heard it here first. <laughs> God, I yeah. wish. Oh my God, oh, that would be man. amazing. Let's just... I can't even imagine what they would ask for. Like, it, it, they would ask for Mark Stone. Should be a heart contender this year. He's been that good. Legitimately, like, and you know what? I would say no one has made as much fun of the Ottawa Senators as we have. I feel like. But, like, we will credit quality when we see it. Mark every, Stone's amazing. Yeah, yeah, every number on Mark Stone, it, it, it's like, it's just when you browse through numbers enough of the time, you get kind of inured to seeing, like, oh, that guy looks good, that guy looks bad. His splits are ridiculous. He single-handedly makes Ottawa respectable when he's on. And mm. when he's off, they are, like, bordering on tank season sabers bad. Like, they're really yeah. awful, so. Yeah. yeah. Anyway, um... What are your thoughts on Mac Hollowell? I do not have super well-developed thoughts on Mac Hollowell, but I will just say he's a 20-year-old playing in junior. So almost everything about how well he's playing, and by all accounts, he's playing really, really well. He's producing a ton as a right-shooting defenseman. But everything that you say about him has to come with kind of a shrug and a caveat. You know what I mean? Like I, Yep. Andrew Nielsen dominated in the Western Hockey League as an overager, and, you know, so, who knows? Uh, could you discuss Marner's contract? Buying RFA years versus buying UFA years in the context of percentage of cap using comparable contracts. Woo! <laughs> um, I, so I briefly did a thing, well, actually, you know, briefly is an out-and-out lie. It was like 2,800 words. I mm-hmm. lengthily did a thing on Friday talking about the things that are going to matter in the context of these contracts. So I want to say, um, just as a general thing, one, people expect the cap to go up because the cap has always gone up since the salary cap has existed pretty well. Um, That doesn't actually guarantee that it will, but generally the trend has been cap goes upwards. So the percentage of the cap for a, a deal decreases over time in terms of cap hit. And then... Buying UFA years for obvious reasons costs you more money because if a guy could be UFA, he could get more people to bid on him and he could drive the price up. Whereas with RFAs, the bidding is restricted. So, very naturally. In terms of what he should get, Marner does not have um, very clear comparables just because he's one of those really high-end players in a level where there aren't that many other guys. And the other comparables are players who are expiring this year. Like a lot of them, like Miko Rantanen's a good comparable, Braden Point's a good comparable, um, but they're expiring this year along with Martyr. So we don't have the knowledge of what they are going to sign for right now. Mm-hmm. It, it, it's difficult, as you said. Um, this has been an offensive explosion year, which means that 90 points in this year, which it looks like Marner might get, um, which it looks like Marner will get, it's not the same as 
a 22-year-old or 21-year-old getting 90 points two years ago. Mm. Um, So that has to be kept in mind during this entire negotiation. You're going to see a lot of comparisons to other players in previous years and their point totals. That is a false comparison because Mm. those point totals were put up in less offense-friendly years. So with Marner, it becomes really tough. There's, There's rumors that he's... They don't think he should take any less that his camp doesn't think he should take any less than Matthews. Um, and Matthews' reported ask is itself worth a conversation, I suppose. I, I think it's yeah. pretty hard to forecast right now. Um, I, I, one thing I will say, if Marner's contract demands are legit, I think it's it makes sense to bridge him because mm-hmm. I don't think his ask is going to go up by a whole lot more. But and you can save a ton of money if you bridge him potentially. Um, and yeah, like it, this, it, this whole thing, it, it's a total, it's impossible to tell what it's going to be right now. Um, certainly, I think it's going to be above dry cycles. Yeah, I think so right? too. I think, I think that's essentially the low water mark at this point. Yeah, I, I do think it's worth uh, saying, and I mentioned this in the piece, but as much as we can talk about comparables, and comparables do matter in terms of how they affect the players and the agents and the general managers, in terms of what they view as reasonable or acceptable, the fact remains, this is a discussion about leverage, and the players have a certain amount of leverage because they cannot play for a team that very seriously views itself as a contender right now. So, for very valuable players like Matthews and Marner, they do have power as RFAs independent of the prospect of them getting offer sheeted, which I don't I still don't think is especially likely. Like, I don't think that they're going to sign offer sheets, mm-hmm. but I do think that um, it, it gets very tough uh, to guess here. I, I agree that I think if we get Marner for 9 million on a term contract, I'm going to be pretty pleased with that. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, yeah. On, on a long-term deal, 9 million, I'd be very happy with, I think like, Nine point five and below is, I think, would be would be very very good. When you get above that, it's a little trickier. I guess the comparison there is to someone like Jack Eichel got ten on an eight year deal, so that was and it ended up being like what like thirteen percent of the cap or something like that. Yeah. Um, do we think Marner is as good as Jack Eichel? And the truth is, a lot of people do, and I don't. Um, yeah. The other I, thing, the other complicating thing here, Marner. I've, I've never seen a player who. When I visually watch him, I think he is running the show right now. Mm-hmm. Um, but to the degree that I do with him, but then his play driving stats are always so mediocre. And, yeah, and by that, it's I'm, so I'm weird. referring to the stuff like RAPM and isolated threat. Like they're, they're, his play driving stats are typically not that great, mm-hmm. right? Um, and when they're, they're good in ways that you wouldn't expect. Like his isolated threat, I think he grades out as like, you know, above average in terms of driving play, but it, his value is almost all defensive, which you certainly don't think of when you think of Mitch Marner. I think he's fine defensively. I didn't expect him to be above average defensively and average offensively. That's not the combination that no. we think of when we think of Mitch Marner. So he's he's just such a hard player to um, kind of really pin down because he's a very unique player in, in some sense, and his his worth relative to other players is, is in different things. It also depends on how you view goals versus assists. And things like that, like it, it's tough. I I would like to keep him under nine point five. I don't think that's necessarily possible on term. He's had a brilliant year, mm-hmm. um, and I, I guess we'll see. This is kind of an unsatisfying answer, but 
there needs to be a lot more work done um, to figure out exactly how much his his contract is going to be. My guess is it's going to be around. My guess is that if the Leafs can't get him under like mid nines on a long term deal, it's going to be a, a shorter term bridge. Yeah, I, I think so. Uh, for like for like like maybe like six or seven million on a, on a bridge. Yeah, I'd be impressed if it were even that low on a bridge, but yeah. uh, we'll see. Um, how much does handedness actually affect a player's, especially defenseman's effectiveness? Um, it depends so so much on the player. I've seen some work done that suggested that there could be a difference of about six shots per sixty minutes. Six shots. Yeah, that's attempts. by that's by Dominic Gallimini. Right, right, yeah, yeah, we should uh, reference that that's Dom's work that went into that. And I think that that's good. I think it's it's useful mainly as a way of noting that handedness does matter. Yeah, it's, um, it's a baseline, but it's gonna, as you said, it's going to be very, very individual. That, like, six shot attempts per uh, 60 minutes of 5v5 time is an average, right? And it's going to mm-hmm. affect different people very differently. Yeah, and there are so many things that go into a situation where you're playing on your offhand, like who are you playing with? For another thing, are you able to defer to them in certain situations to make plays? Uh, I think it does matter. I don't think Mike Babcock is crazy to value it, whether it's valuable to the point where you really want to uh, to favor it uh, in terms of using a less effective guy who has the right-handedness. I don't know. But uh, so this next one, that was the end of uh, Pids88's questions. Thanks, Pids88. Uh, the next one is from A Real Good Pro. Very nice. Um since they, I assume meaning the mainstream media, are stuck on it, are stuck on it. Excuse me. Can you give your opinion on if Marner were to accept an offer sheet? They get four firsts and ten million ish in cap space, or they could match. What would they likely do with all the assets? How good or bad would it be? So I've seen a lot of this discussing because you know some of Marner's asks have leaked, and some people have started saying, "Well, then screw him, let him go, uh, let someone offer sheet him if he can." I, I want to emphasize again, I don't think he's going to sign an offer sheet. Um, yeah. And it, it's still not a great thing for the Leafs if he does. Um, you know, and look, we said this with Nylander. Marner is perfectly within his rights to maximize his money. It is completely fine. Like, I don't think anyone should crap on him for wanting to be paid what he's worth. Yeah. Right? Or what he feels he's worth. You know, I'm, I'm never going to criticize a player for that. Um, his ask is more than I think he's worth right now. Yeah. If he got an offer sheet... Up to like ten mil, I think they'll sign it without or match it without hesitating. Yeah, and right. And once you get above that, is when it gets tricky. Yeah, there you know there is obviously a number, but one you have a question of, um, you know, players who would. Uh, I'm sorry, I'm rambling here. One you have a question of do does the other team seriously want to give up four first round picks, and also pay what would probably be an overpay of two, three, maybe four million dollars over what he's probably worth. That's a huge expense to pay uh, on their end, which is why I partly think that it's unlikely. If they're mm-hmm. doing it just to screw with the Toronto Maple Leafs um, by making them overpay by like 500 grand, I just find it hard to believe that too many teams are running a business this way. You know what I mean? Like you can't make this decision on the grounds of, yeah, we'll just screw with them without really thinking about it because you're putting a lot of assets on the line there and to really inconvenience the Leafs, you have to make it an overpay. And so you're really like, you can be left holding the bag there. So you'd better be sure that's what you want. 
Um, that said, I think it would be very unfortunate for the Leafs if Marner did leave on an offer sheet. And what did they likely do with all the assets? Well, depending on who's signing him to an offer sheet, they probably pick four times in the 20s or so over consecutive years. Like, I don't think you're getting a lottery team offer sheeting Mitch Marner. And then the 10 million plus in cap space, you can do stuff with it. But I've seen people say, oh, just turn around and sign Artemi Panarin. And I'm like, are you awake for what's happening with Artemi Panarin? Because he's quite vocally trying to get out of a place he doesn't like. Maybe he would want to come to Toronto. Maybe he wouldn't. And there aren't infinite uh, Artemi Panarins available on the market to acquire. You know, you can do things with cap space. That's very useful. But opportunities to sign really, really high-end free agents and having them want to come to you are pretty special. You know, before and John Tavares, why, yeah, how that's often why did it it's happen? so incredible that what happened with Tavares happened. That's why everyone was kind of surprised because this doesn't happen that often in hockey. Sorry, I cut you off there. No, but it's very true. Like, what are the marquee free agents that the Leafs were able to sign since the introduction of the salary cap? One, John Tavares. Two, David Clarkson. So, okay. <laughs> um, I, I don't think you know. People kind of want to say, well, if he does get offered in that regard. Maybe we're even better off anyway. I do not believe at all that we would be. I believe yeah. that, you know, it, the cap space in the first are our consolation prize, but it sucks. So, yeah, it would absolutely suck. Which is why I think we would probably match. So, yeah, because the, the chance to get a player like Mitch Marner on your team, it, it doesn't come around that often. Mm-hmm. It just doesn't. So, yeah. Um, um, as okay. much as we may think his ask is too high, he's a brilliant player who, who is surely worth in the high single digits in terms of uh, a contract. So yeah. You, and look, I want to get the over- best deal here, but I don't like if, yeah, if you have to overpay Mitch Marner a little bit, as opposed to not having him at all. Well, yeah. <laughs> you know. and it, it's, it sucks because it seems like every other team has ridiculous value deals for their star RFAs. And the yeah. Leafs don't so far. Like I think the Niener deal is fair, mm-hmm. but it's not a steal from the Leafs perspective. If he continues to not score like this, it, it's a steal from his perspective, really. Yeah. Um, and then I say that even acknowledging that I think Neander has largely played well for portions of the year. Mm-hmm. So we'll, we'll see. It'll suck in that regard. I'm hoping it doesn't happen. We're like six months away from finding out. Yeah. Um, so the next one is uh, heavier from Very Galk. Um, Pierre Maguire and his apparent sexism. Discuss. Uh, <laughs> it's okay. a hell of a prompt. Yeah. Um, so I'll, I'll say briefly, the thing about... Uh, Pierre Maguire and why it was much discussed. I wasn't watching the broadcast at the time. I found about it after. But I'll note, one, he kind of treated uh, Miss Coyne Schofield. Uh, I should, sorry, I should give some lead in if people don't know what I'm talking about. Uh, Kendall Coyne Schofield, who performed very impressively at the All-Star game, was asked to come on as a commentator on a Wednesday night game on NBC. And that meant that she had to spend some time in proximity with Pierre Maguire, which is not something that anyone should have to do, let's say that off the top. But uh, Pierre Maguire kind of uh, acted like an idiot, really. You, you know, he was making, he made kind of some weird jokes that I didn't really understand. I'm not saying that they were like explicit or anything like that. They were just kind of odd. But he sort of, he came across as kind of patronizing and over explaining the game of hockey to someone who, let's remember, is an elite hockey player. Um, 
She's an Olympic gold medalist. Like Yeah. Like I don't know <laughs> she, what to tell she knows you. How to play. She's probably heard of some of the concepts. Yeah. So you know, it's just a matter of when you have a woman expert um, who you're dealing with, you have to just treat them with the same level of respect you would um, with a male expert. Now, Pierre Maguire is a weird guy. I think it's fair to say his interactions with even male hockey players have been much remarked upon in the past, but he did clearly seem to be discounting her experience and her, uh, her knowledge of the game to a level that he just wouldn't do for a really, really high end male hockey player, or even for like any professional male hockey player. Um, it just, you know, I, I think that you got to do better than that. I don't, I'm not sure what else to say. Yeah. It, it was just really, really, really disappointing uh, to see. It, it just, it was a complete kind of lack of respect from, from uh, Maguire to, to coin Schofield. So, I think it's pretty cut and dry. If, if someone disagrees, I would have, honestly, a fairly difficult time understanding what they're seeing and why it's not disrespectful, regardless of intent. Intent, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't really matter here. Yeah. Uh, you know, I think we just want them to do better on this. And it's like it's not that hard, you know, to have yeah, a level really of professional not. respect. Um you know, or just let, you know, lead in with a question like, you know, what are you seeing out there? Like, what's jumping out to you about the game or something like, you know, do they have, you know, puck movement in women's hockey? Yes, um, they do. And so, yeah, I just think that that's that's not great. And you'd hope that uh, Pierre and NBC can do better in the course of doing more of this. You know, it was good to have her on the broadcast, but then it's like treat her as someone who's actually knowledgeable and can contribute like we know she can so yeah that that's uh what i'd say another one from very galk was agree or disagree with uh justin Bourne. uh the leafs need to add someone who can hurt people and he acknowledges that that's a paraphrase of what Bourne said but he, mm-hmm. i think he was saying something along those lines um we kind of talked about this on the toughness thing so i don't want to rehash it too much i i don't really value hurt people that much. I mean, you can think of guys who do that, but who are also effective when they're on the ice, like Tom Wilson. Um, I don't know that I really want that that much. Yeah, I, I wouldn't really enjoy rooting for that. And I mean, e- even now, I think the Leafs probably their dir- our dirtiest player is Kadri, and he mm-hmm. routinely pisses me off with some of the stuff that he does because it's just unnecessary and detracts from his immense value as a incredibly skilled hockey player. He doesn't yeah. need to, to do the dirty stuff. Yeah, or to get himself suspended at a key point in the playoff series, which is like a risk that you're taking mm-hmm. with guys who throw those kind of hits. Um, yeah, and so, you know, I, I don't know. Um, look, are there guys who could check all those boxes who I might want to add? Maybe, but... Yeah, like if you're saying, oh, yeah, if you had like Jamie Benn, yeah. the least would be a better team. It's like, okay, yeah, sure. I mean, but I think his can hurt people skill is incidental to his immense finishing talent and ability to score. Yeah. I mean, this may be just one of those things, you know, some people talk about the intimidation value of playing the game and uh, look, I, I played a bit of contact hockey. Most of the time it was non-contact. So maybe I underestimate it. Uh, mm-hmm. But like, even when I did play contact, like I got, like I was willing to take a hit to make a play. And that was as like a, a crappy high school player. 
Like, I distinctly remember that there was some some kid from another school who was, like, pretty much just headhunting out there. And he keyed on me so hard on a two-on-one that I was like, all right, well, I'll spring my center for a breakaway. And he may or may not have given me a concussion. But, um, you know, my, my center went away and scored. So, you know, I just find myself thinking that the hurt element or the intimidation element is kind of overestimated to me. But that's that's what I think, anyway. Yeah. Um, so from... Big Busy, I think. Uh, I want you to ratify my belief that Martin Marincin is better than Ozekanov and Ainsi. I want to. Uh, he, he did clear, by the way. Oh, okay. Well, that's a relief. I want him in our organization. I, I mean, we're diehard fans of Martin Marincin. There's something that I will note. A lot of the time, if you look at advanced statistics and you just kind of play around with them and stuff like that, you can often find lots of stats, like way more than you'd expect, where Martin Marincin is either the best or the worst player on the Leafs. Again and again. I just find this funny. Um, yeah. Um, and the other thing we should say, because like we, we've kind of memed about Marincin so much that it, it's understandable for people to not know our actual opinions on him. Yeah. Um, I think he is a competent bottom-pairing defenseman. Mm-hmm. That, that's kind of where it maxes out. He had a, a run for a while where he just consistently put up really strong um, shot metrics. Mm-hmm. Now, with, with the rise of things like RAPM and Isolated Threat... Uh, we can kind of better isolate for his usage. And his usage does appear to be soft enough that it explains some portion of those results. So I think he, he is legitimately an NHL defenseman in a kind of weird, unconventional package. I don't think he's r- that much better, if at all, than any of the other Leafs third-pairing defensemen. Yeah, he, he's part of the group. I, I mean, look, if you put a gun to my head and said, you know, okay... It's third pair right wing. You can play Ron Haynes or you can play Martin Marincin. I might say Marincin, but it's not by such a, a level that I think that it's obvious. And I also have to be real here. People talk about Mike Babcock's bias in favor of certain players over other players. I'm pretty sure that he would play Martin Marincin if he thought that he could. Because he gave mm-hmm. him a lot of run, uh, especially in the playoff series against the Capitals. You know, he used him frequently. He's a big guy who's rangy who can kill penalties. Like, he checks a lot of boxes for Babcock. So the fact that he's not a regular player for him is kind of suggestive to me. So, yeah. Uh, sorry, we can't quite ratify that belief to a great extent. Um, for From J. Rick Leifer. Uh, will Matthews ever drive play like a Bergeron Datsuk-type monster? Offensively, he's almost peerless, but I wonder about the two-way stuff. Um, so, I mean... You're setting a high bar with Bergeron and Datsuk, who are two Hall of Fame players, and mm-hmm. in their primes, the two kind of maybe best play-driving centers in the league. I don't think Matthews will get to that point, because I don't think anyone really gets to that point, except for those two guys, right? They were almost mm-hmm. in the league for their own for some time. Um, I think Matthews will improve in this regard. Uh, I would hope to see him improve in, mm-hmm. in this regard. His play-driving has been a mild disappointment this season. Yeah, but he he does have all the tools that you need to do that, and he's just still such a dangerous player even without that in his toolbox. Like, we forget he he's twenty one, right? He's going to get better. Yeah, and uh, as much as we get impatient with that stuff, and I do think that he is right now, he's not a, a full well rounded player. Uh, yeah, there's so much more more growing to do there. Like you know, for guys like uh, like Jeremy Bracco or something, who is older. Then Austin Matthews, you know, like we're still talking about some of these guys as if they're in a developmental phase. And then we kind of forget that Matthews is also, even though he's 
already very good. So, yeah. He won't get that good. He will get better, I think, is fair. Um, yeah, yeah. I, I, I expect to see him top out at, like as an above-average play driver who... Yeah, an above-average play driver who's not elite. So maybe... Okay, so I have to, I have to check the numbers on this, but maybe a com- comparison is Evgeny Malkin. Because mm. Malkin has always been, like, offensively destructive and then gives some of that back on defense. Yeah. But you kind of don't mind because he also has amazing finishing talent, ability to set up his teammates and that sort of thing. So I think... I think... I think uh, Matthews can be that sort of player. Which is, I mean... He's a, that means he'll be the 102nd best player in the world or in, 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 in NHL history. So That's pretty good. Yeah. Yes. So uh, from Ethan T. Black, uh, talk about how elite of a defenseman Ozyganov is and why he deserves a top two spot over that bust Riley. I think that's a joke. But um, I, the one thing I will note maybe is that uh, the pairing between Igor Ozyganov and Travis Dermott has put up pretty good Corsi stats. I'd say yeah. almost entirely because of Dermot. Yeah, I think I give a lot of that to Dermot. I think Ozzy Ganoff is like a fine enough seventh defenseman. Like, yeah. I, he was probably better than I thought he was going to be. Oh, but, yeah, I, I had really low expectations for him. Yeah, so he's perfectly functional. Uh, that's what I'll say. The only thing I'll say in general is that I've learned to be more careful about third pair defensemen who put up nice Corsi stats. Mm-hmm. I think that it's probably clear that that's harder to sustain than we always recognized before so uh this is from uh a routine listener who has lots of fun comments for us on twitter uh michael zanette um he says darren dreger claims that he is 100 percent certain that multiple teams are preparing to offer sheet marner please discuss so we've addressed this a little bit the one thing i'll say is it's a lot easier to tell darren dreger you might offer sheet somebody than to offer sheet somebody and you know if i wanted to just stir the waters or jostle negotiations or just inconvenience somebody or whatever i might say that it doesn't mean that they're not going to do it but then we get to the next point which is that mitch Marner has to sign and maybe these negotiations are going to be acrimonious in a way that i don't expect but i will be really really surprised if this ends with mitch Marner signing an offer sheet I just don't think that's going to happen. I think he knows he's got a good thing here. I think the Leafs are going to recognize they can't totally stiff him financially. I think Mitch Marner is also going to recognize that he's one of those rare hockey players for whom endorsement value does matter. Like, he's in every odd commercial, it seems like, in Toronto. Mm -hmm. And so he can actually make some money in this market. So I I think all things considered, I'm with Kyle Dubas. I'm just not that concerned about it. Yep, I agree. Okay, that one was easy. Um, the Leafs, in my opinion, asked, cap implications aside, if the Leafs are able to make one more trade for a defenseman, which player are they more likely to get, Nick Jensen or Radko Gudas? Uh, the tricky thing is that cap implications do matter a little bit. Yeah, with that. in the answer to this question. I would say Jensen just because that team is an obvious seller, whereas Philadelphia is apparently like the 2007 Red Wings now and just isn't going to lose. <laughs> So yeah. they might think they can make the playoffs, even though I think the odds are quite low. So. Yeah. We should probably uh, run through these quick, because we're, we're, we're definitely pretty uh, pretty much over time. Yeah, no, the good news is there's only one more. Oh, okay, so, perfect. This is from Mike2, another longtime listener. Um, request that you speak briefly on why, apparently, quality of competition doesn't matter, and on that topic, who is better, Zach Hyman or Connor Brown? So, okay. Uh, yeah, go ahead. Um, so... I think the, the key here is it's not that quality of competition 
doesn't matter. It's that if you're saying that quality of competition matters, you also have to adjust for quality of teammates. And Mm -hmm. the two are often correlated, right? Like players who get matched up against tough players are also generally playing with their team's best players. And to some extent, that offsets. Now, furthermore, um, for a lot of players, the differences in quality of competition across an entire year are not as drastic as differences in quality of teammates. Because it, think about it, logically, you're with your teammates almost every shift, right? Things get moved around, but on a game-to-game basis, your teammates can be quite consistent. Especially for a team like the Leaps, by the way, who typically don't move around the lines that much in-game. Um, but quality of competition, I mean, very few people get hard-matched every single game of the year to an opponent's top players. And the other thing is, you're facing different opponents, and they have different strengths, right? You're getting hard-matched to the Coyotes' top line is different than getting hard-matched to Connor McDavid. Mm. So over the course of the year, um, people have done studies on this, and they found that quality competition does have an impact, but it isn't, it isn't necessarily as important as we might intuitively think. And uh, Micah McCurdy has, I think, done the best work on this. If you look at uh, his write-up for his, his um, isolated threat model, he discusses the impact of quality competition, and it does have an, an impact. It's just outside of the super elite um, players or players who get really skewed usage, it isn't as important as all the other things that we must also simultaneously account for, right? So mm-hmm. a guy who, for whom quality competition did matter the last few years is Nazem Kadri. If you look at Nazem Kadri's Corsi rail the last few years, it's very mediocre. But as soon as you adjust for how hard the competition he's facing was and how bad his line mates were, by all these context-adjusted measures, he looks amazing in terms of his play-driving ability. And he is because he sawed off at even against strong lines with really weak line mates. Mm-hmm. So it does, I think it, it does a disservice to the point to say that quality competition doesn't matter. It does matter, but other things also matter, and those effects can often swamp out the effects of quality competition in most cases. Yeah, I think that that's a good survey of it. And it's a, a more fulsome answer than the usual thing about, you know, quality of competition just being dismissed, which seems, you know, on its surface to be kind of nuts. Um, talking about Zach Hyman and Connor Brown, uh, I will acknowledge some bias in this question. Uh, but I think Zach Hyman is definitely a better player. I don't think it's close. Yeah, me neither. Um, I, I think that Zach Hyman is a very special player because he's very, very good at certain particular things. And they put him in a position where he actually gets a lot of individual scoring chances, where the thing that he's not so good at, which is doing creative things with his shot or digging, kind of comes into sharper relief. So you spend a lot of time seeing him do the thing that he's not that great at. But every line that he's on gets better. Um, He's a really, a really effective four checker. I, I like him in a lot of situations. Um, I think, you know, he's an inexpensive contributor. Connor Brown is like a fine enough defensive winger to me. But despite the the 20 goal season, which I feel like should be in all capitals, uh, I don't think he adds much offensively. And I don't think he's ever going to score 20 goals again. Yeah. Um, RAPM, by the way, loves Zach Hyman and really thinks Connor Brown is nothing to write home about. Oh, well, there you go. I'm validated in my biases in favor of my boy Zachary. So yeah, uh, thanks so much to everyone who uh, who commented. We covered a, a lot of stuff in uh, about 80 minutes there. But uh, yeah, that was uh, interesting. And we appreciate everyone who listens or writes into us. So. Yeah, very much appreciated. When we started this week, we figured, we figured we'd be listening, or we figured that like 12 people would be listening to us and most of them would be our families. 
Um, which, you know, might, might still be the case. Maybe we just have a lot of burner accounts in our families. Yeah, um, like they're... Yeah. It is really cool that uh, we get the sort of support and feedback whenever we ask for and run out of ideas. So I uh, expect to see this again next week. <laughs> <laughs> going to do this forever. No, uh, but yeah. thank you very much. So, yeah. yeah. Um, you can also catch all of mine and Fuleman's writing, the little bit that we do at this point, at pensionplanpuppets.com. You can also follow us on Twitter at RV and AT Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next week.